Okay, so I want to start uh, by asking you guys a question. Is, is it important to you that I pray? Yeah, yeah right? Like do, you, like, do you care if I have a prayer life? Or, or put it the other way, if I, if I told you I never pray, would, that, would you find that problematic? Probably, yes. Okay, why? Why is it important to you that I would pray? Because I am the pastor. Yes, okay. And, and why do you want to know that your pastor prays? To know that I have a relationship with the Lord? I practice what I preach? Yeah, right, because prayer is a humbling thing. I think part of why we want to know that, that the people who are leading us are praying is because we want to know that they're depending on God for what, for what they're doing, right? Because otherwise, what are we doing here? Otherwise, we're just talking. And we want to know that, that what's happening here is, is centered on and soaked in how God would direct us as a congregation. And so it's important that we think, okay, well, the people who are leading us, we, we want to see them uh, praying before God, asking him, Lord, what do you have for us and for our congregation on, for Sunday morning? But guys, just as that is important for me, do you realize that prayer is just as important for you? Because what we were talking about last week, right, with the book of Nehemiah, is that God has this plan for what he is doing in the world, right? This arc of history. And that he's, he's invited us to be involved in it. That his desire is that there would be a holy people worshiping a holy God in a... Yes, okay, And this is the plan that God has always been about. And that what's true for us is we are living kind of like on the plane of history, you know, like of our day-to-day lives. And we know that this arc of what God is doing is happening, but it can feel like here we're kind of stuck in the day-to-day mundane uh, parts of our lives. And what prayer does is prayer is a way that we participate in this bigger story that God is writing in our everyday lives. And as much as that's important for me, it's important for you because you have a role in that story. Do you know that you are called to be a priest for God? That's a part of, of, that's a part of your identity as part of the people of God. You're a priest. You mediate the presence of God to the world. That's true about you. You know, you, you're a king. You are a queen in God's kingdom. That he has given you immense power and authority in this world, spiritual power and authority. And part of living out your calling as a child of God is you using that authority and power in a way that brings about the kingdom of God. You have been called to be a prophet. You know that? that you would be aware of what is true and that you would represent what is true uh, to the world around you in a way that celebrates and challenges uh, what we see in our world. You're called to those things. And you're called to them in a way that the people who get paid to do this on Sunday morning can never do because God has put you exactly where you are on purpose the people that he's put in your life, the skills that he's given you, the gifts that he's given you, the opportunities that he's given you, they're unique to you. 
And so you're being called to participate in this overall plan of God here in your day-to-day life. And prayer is one of the primary ways that we anchor ourselves in that, that we wake ourselves up to, that we live into the fact that that's true in our everyday lives. Because without prayer, sometimes even with prayer, it's hard to see sometimes, isn't it? There's a guy named Eugene Peterson. He's a pastor. And he says this, he says, a life of prayer is the connective tissue between holy day proclamation and weekday discipleship. Prayer, a life of prayer is the connective tissue between holy day proclamation. It's what we're doing here on Sundays, right? When we come here and we sing about who God is and we talk about who God is and we pray about who God is and we're with God's people. Prayer is what connects what we believe is happening here with the everyday discipleship, the, the day-to-day following Jesus in our everyday lives. And I'll tell you guys, uh, preaching about prayer is intimidating to me because it's something I feel like I'm still learning a ton about. That setting down the busyness of life for prayer It's a hard thing. And so what we're preaching on this morning, what what I'm going to be preaching on is not out of my own confidence. It's out of the confidence that comes from God's word being true for us, for all of us. And I was thinking about, man, what what is it that can make prayer so intimidating? And I think so often prayer is like, uh, it's like going in to one of those medieval European cathedrals. And if you've ever been in, inside of one of these buildings and they have, they have them in the United States too, you know, in different places, but you walk in and it's just this, it's this huge space and the space of it can be so intimidating. It like makes you feel small and alone. And, and so what, what I, think that, I think that's what prayer is like, that prayer, uh, it's walking into this thing that's so much bigger than us that draws us into the bigness of God. And that can be intimidating because it makes us feel small. But then what we start to notice as we enter into this practice of prayer is that it's actually very beautiful, right? You start to notice all of the details and the ornateness that all of it is pointing you to, not just the bigness of God in an intimidating way, but in an inviting way. And that feeling small is actually a gift. And in, in, in the in this room of prayer that we've been invited into that's so much bigger than we imagine. There are so many spaces in it to explore. And today we are not gonna explore all of them. We're just gonna kind of sit down in it, take a seat in the pew and talk about, okay, from where we are today, what does God's word have to teach us about prayer? And the hope is that this sparks a a lifelong journey for you of, of exploring this giant cathedral of prayer and learning what it is to inhabit that space uh, in all the different seasons of your life. Okay, Allie, will you you come up here? Allie's going to read our scripture for us uh, out of Nehemiah this morning. So this is Nehemiah 1, verses 4 through 11. Go ahead and grab that mic.
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying, praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed and by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Thanks, Allie. Pray with me. Father, we are, uh, we're thankful for your word. God, as you, uh, yeah, Lord, would you, would you speak to us this morning? Would you be teaching us about the invitation that you have for us uh, out of this prayer from Nehemiah? Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be talking about this morning the, the process of prayer and the practice of prayer. The process of prayer and the practice of prayer. And then we're going to get a chance to practice that some together uh, at the end of the service. So the process of prayer. And, and what I'm trying to get at here is that it'd be easy to go through these verses kind of line by line and, and use Nehemiah's prayer as a model for the way that we pray. And, and there's value in that. We're going to do that a little bit when we talk about the practice of prayer. But I also want us to notice some of the things that we learn about prayer kind of in a, in a macro sense from, from the story itself. So if you look at verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I think one of the things that we see here in Nehemiah is that Nehemiah's pain has become a doorway into prayer for him. The pain has become a doorway into prayer. And there are lots of doorways into prayer. There are lots of ways and reasons and things that happen in our lives that would drive us to pray. But one of the primary ways, one of the primary things that drives us into prayer, one of the, one of the doors that is most clearly marked for our entrance into this cathedral of prayer is the doorway of pain in our lives. And that was true for Nehemiah. And we talked about that a little bit last week, that, that anchoring our lives in the story of God means anchoring our lives in a hope that we have now, but that we also are hoping to come. And the gap between those things from the way the world currently is to the way that we know the world was intended to be and will be, that gap, uh, that creates pain in our lives. Because there's an acknowledgement that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that gap is an invitation into prayer. For Nehemiah, that was a result of soul-crushing disappointment that 
his expectation for what God was doing in Jerusalem, we talked about this some last week, for what God was doing in Jerusalem didn't match what was actually happening. And that burned him. Compassion and empathy can bring pain into our lives and can become a gateway for prayer, right? And we see that a little bit in Nehemiah also, that his heart was broken for his brothers and sisters who were in Jerusalem and were experiencing so much shame. And really, any unmet desire involves pain, no matter how small that desire may seem. When I want something that I don't have, there's pain there. And we all have, we all have pain in our lives, even this morning. Maybe at different intensities. And that's not... And I think often we can use that to kind of shame ourselves. Well, you know, my pain isn't as great as this person's pain. So I don't know. Pain at whatever intensity is an invitation into prayer. Because prayer is like, uh, I said this last week, right? Prayer is like velocity. Sometimes I, I, you guys are really smart people. So I'm always trying to think of like, what are the things that you guys know about physics? You know, I don't know very much about physics, but I remember that from high school physics. Velocity is speed with a direction, Right? This is the part where someone's like, no, you missed it. Sometimes they see that and I'm like, oh, geez. No, I, I fact check this one, okay? That is true about velocity. It's speed with direction. And that pain in our lives is like velocity. Yeah, there are different intensities, but that intensity is always moving us somewhere. That our pain is, is either gonna move us toward God or it's gonna move us away from God. It's either gonna move us deeper into who we really are or move us away from ourselves. And what we often think is that stuffing pain is like a neutral response. I'm just gonna stay where I am. I'm just gonna push the pain down. That's not a thing. Pushing the pain down doesn't, doesn't make it go away. That's not you standing in the same place. That when you push the pain down in your life, when I push it down in my life, what we're doing is pushing away from ourselves and pushing away from God. Because that pain is an invitation. And the question for us this morning is, do you know where you're experiencing pain in your life? And maybe for some of you this morning, uh, it's so obvious. And maybe for, for some of you, it's, it's hard to see, or maybe you're trying not to see it. And I just want to remind you, that the place of that pain is a, is a doorway into the presence of God through prayer. What we also see in this passage is that prayer, it takes time, right? So this is like a really, I think, interesting literary technique that Nehemiah uses here. So in verse four, we get this picture of him and he, he sits down and he starts weeping and then he starts this prayer. And then at the end of the prayer, he prays, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. You're like, what is happening? Okay, Nehemiah is using this prayer as a kind of like a time-lapse sequence in the book. It's like Lion King, you know, when they're singing Akuna Matata and Simba grows up in the course of the song. 
I promise one day I will use an adult film reference, but that's just not my life right now, so bear with me. But you know, that's what happens in those time-lapse sequences, right? It's like you watch time pass. That's what's happening in these verses is time is passing. And, and there are these markers here in ver- chapter two, verse one, it says in the month of Nisan. And then uh, in the verses that we read last week, it talks about the month of Chislev. There four, there's a four-month gap there in the Persian calendar. So what that means is that Nehemiah was praying and fasting and weeping for four months. Prayer, it, it takes time. It takes time in a day-to-day sense, and it takes time um, it takes time in a day-to-day sense in that for you to make time to pray in your day takes time, right? That's just true. That's like a, that's a, that is a fact about prayer. It takes time to do it. And it's time that can be hard to find because part of what's happening in prayer, right, is that you've got to take the time to actually quiet yourself and know where you are so you can connect with the Lord in that space. It takes time. So there's, there's that day-to-day kind of reality. And then there's the reality that in the, in the practice and in the process of prayer, God God does stuff inside of us that he uses prayer to meet us and to change us. That prayer is one of the things that humbles proud people. Prayer is one of the things that softens our hard hearts. Prayer is one of the things that shows us what we're angry about so that we can be angry for the things of God. That for Nehemiah, prayer was the thing that actually led him to the plan for his life. That, that prayer was the process by which God gave him a vision for how he was going to be engaged in this overall uh, arc of God in his day-to-day life. And it takes time. And that's an important thing for us to realize when we're engaging in this process. And sometimes it feels like day-to-day we wonder, I mean, is this, is this doing anything? Is this working? God, what is, what is happening here? And the invitation for us in recognizing that prayer is a process that takes time is that we wouldn't be judging the effectiveness of the prayers based on our day-to-day reaction of how that experience hits us. It's like a seed that's growing. It takes time. You don't always see what's going on. But the promise here and what we see in Nehemiah is that over the process and over time in engaging with prayer, God is doing work. He's preparing Nehemiah. And the last thing I want to point out in the, about the process of prayer that we see in this passage is that prayer, uh, the, the secret sauce of prayer, okay, is God's word. That Nehemiah's prayer in this passage is soaked in God's word. Some different kind of critical commentators on this text, they say, oh, Nehemiah didn't pray this prayer because it's just passages of the Old Testament linked together. No, that's just how people prayed, okay? They would take things that they knew that were true about God and that were true about themselves that they would see in the word and they would stick those things together and that became the language with which they used to pray. One of my favorite dead guys, Augustine, okay? When he, uh, when he was, when he'd just become a Christian, his mentor told him, hey, you should go read Isaiah. That's where you should start. What? So Augustine opened it up and he was like, this is very confusing. He said, instead, I just went to the Psalms. Because the Psalms are the prayer book for God's people. And he said, that's where I learned the language of God. 
was in prayer. And it's God's word that gives us the tools that we need to know how to interact with him and who he is and who we are. I had a friend who used to say that when we memorize scripture, what we're doing is we're giving the Holy Spirit a vocabulary, a way of speaking into our lives, because we can be confident that God is always speaking to us through his word. And so whether that scripture is memorized or read or stored away in some way inside of us, that scripture is, is a really important component in this process of prayer. Because we've got pain as a doorway to prayer. Right? That prayer takes time that it requires God's word. So what does it mean to practice those things? I think the first thing that we got to point out, and this isn't necessarily in this text, but it's true about prayer and we see Jesus do it all the time, is that Jesus withdraws to a quiet place to pray. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, my, uh, my like Sunday school teacher, he like got out a tent, you know, and he like put it in our Sunday school room and a, and a lantern and he talked to us about having a quiet time and how important it was to be, to be in the quiet. I know it made a really big impression on me as a sixth grade. Maybe I should have brought a tent to be up here, but we have a small stage, you know, so you got to really be careful with the props. Uh, and, and even more than finding a space that's quiet, although that can be important, is finding the quiet in our own hearts. That we would stop when we're in coming to and engaging in this practice of prayer, right? And that we would allow our own hearts and minds to be quieted. And if you guys did some of that daily office that we do with Philippians uh, during our last series, that it starts with two minutes of just silence. And what's so important about that is that it gives us a chance to actually connect with what's going on, to slow down long enough to figure out what's going on inside of us and what we're bringing into this time with God. Okay, so for this practice of prayer, I just want to commend this idea of silence. It's an important part of it, okay? And then, and then we're going to just look through uh, Nehemiah's prayer here and see what is what is Nehemiah teach us about the practice of prayer. Now, verse five, it says, and I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And what Nehemiah does at the beginning of his prayer is he roots it in the character of God. He's telling God who God is. How do we know who God is? It's in his word, right? Again, that just helps remind us why, why God's word is so important is that what Nehemiah is talking about here, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, that's a description of God that comes from his, from his word. And what's so helpful about this is that it saves us from, from describing God in all kinds of ways that aren't actually true about God. That when we're praying things that scripture tells us that are true about God, we know that we're praying God's actual character. And what that does for us is when we walk into the cathedral of prayer, it's what lifts up our eyes and, and takes our breath away. That praying the attributes of God is what clues us in to all of the details that have been so finely crafted around us. It's part of what allows us to, to lose our focus on ourselves, which is such a gift. It's one of the primary gifts of prayer. They're taking our eyes off ourselves and setting them on God, worshiping God, telling God who he is. It's part of the practice of prayer. Okay, and then Nehemiah talks about himself. So we see this in verses six and seven. 
talks about confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. So what we see Nehemiah do here in these next verses is once he's looked up at the bigness of God, then he comes back and he, he places himself in relation to God. And what he knows is that while God is, is big and infinite, full of love, steadfast love, right? Always keeping his covenant. And what Nehemiah does is he, he confesses that to God. He confesses his own sin. And that's such an important part of prayer because it reminds us not only who God is, but then who we are. This is uh, in verse seven. It says the commandments, the statutes, and the rules. Those aren't synonyms. They're not just like different ways of saying the same thing. They're different ways of referring to different aspects of God's law. And what Nehemiah is saying is, I have and we have broken all of it. And something that's really interesting about Nehemiah's confession here is that it's corporate, right? It's not just him confessing his own sins, but it's him confessing the sins of him and his family and his whole people. There's a, there's a corporateness that's appropriate for God's people as we confess our sin. That's really hard for us, I think, as Americans often. That we think about guilt as something that's very specific to us as individual people. And that's true, that one day we'll stand before God and that what we're accountable for before God is our own personal sin, the guilt of our sin. Yes. What's also true about sin is that sin is corrupting. And that because sin is corrupting, we all live in the midst of the corruption that our sins have wrought. We live in the corruption, not only of our own personal sin, but all of the sin that's gone before us. And so what we see in Nehemiah is that it's appropriate to confess before God, the corruption of our people. That we would identify with it. You know who that sounds like? Jesus, right? That's what Jesus did. Like, think about this. Do you guys ever think about Jesus getting baptized? It's such a weird thing. To, it's always been a weird thing to me because Jesus is, he was perfect, right? He lived a sinless life. He did not violate any of the statutes, any of the commandments, any of the rules. And yet he goes to John and John, right? John the Baptist is out there and he's baptizing people for the remission of their sins. And Jesus comes to John and John says, I don't need to baptize you. Like John gets that part of it, right? And Jesus says, no, 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 it's important that all righteousness would be fulfilled. What's Jesus doing? Well, he's identifying with God's, he's identifying with us. So he's choosing to take our sin on himself, even in that moment at his baptism. So what Nehemiah does here in identifying with his people is seen even more fully in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is doing at his baptism is in taking on our sin is just a precursor to what he does on the cross. Because at the cross, what Jesus has done is he has paid for all of our sin. That that guilt that we stand with before God has been removed from us. And it's the fact of Jesus's willing identification with us that now allows us to approach God's throne with total confidence. That's what the author of Hebrews says. 
that we can draw to the throne of God in grace with confidence. That when you come before God in prayer with all, with all of your pain, that you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weaknesses, whose heart is so for you, who doesn't shame you and tell you you should have been stronger, but who says, no, I came and I bore that. I know what that's like. That when you come to Jesus with all of your sin and you confess it, that he says, I know. I know it way better than you know it. And even in that place, I love you so. And that's what makes prayer this place of great invitation. And that's what makes prayer this place of great invitation is the God who showed himself to us in the person and work of Christ. Who identified with us in all of our sin and all of our weakness and delights and desires to meet us there and to have compassion on us. And what that means is that we have the freedom to confess boldly that the sin that we so often try to hide from ourselves that live in us, we don't have to hide it anymore. That before God is the place that you are safest to bring all those things and to say them to him. Even very specifically, that prayer is the place that we're free to come with all of our weakness. What happens as we enter into this cathedral of prayer and we get swept up into the bigness of God and our smallness. And that one of the things that it saves us from is our own self-righteousness. And we think about what we're doing, right? We're talking about how this, how this overall story of God's redemptive work makes its way into our day-to-day lives. And what's so tempting for us to do is that if we, if we haven't had our self-righteousness checked by the bigness of God and our own need, that what tends to happen is the plans that come out of us aren't plans about participating in this, that the plans are about us getting God onto our plans in prayer. That prayer becomes this whole exercise of God. How do I kind of twist your arm to get you to do what I want you to do? But once we've taken the time to come in and recognize the, the bigness of God and our own smallness, his unlimitedness and our, limit, our limits, is that now we can be freed from our self-righteousness and to ask God, God, how would you have me then participate in this overall plan in my day-to-day life? That prayer saves us. Oh God, and we need to be saved from it, don't we? From the, from the temptation to live our Christian life uh, in comparison with other Christians. Oh God, thank you that I am not like those Christians, right? And that actually our, our faith can be poisoned by this idea, by this desire to prove that we are not like those other people. Rather than staying focused on the bigness of God and our own limitedness, we can get sucked into all kinds of other places and entering into this cathedral of prayer where we're swept up in the bigness of God and our own limits keeps us and protects us from being self-righteous. And then what we see in verses eight through 10 is that Nehemiah calls God to remember his promises. He says, God, remember you are for your people. 
And in that place, we're free to bring our requests to God. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. We can pray that. Or would you give us success? Would you give us success in the endeavors that you've called us to? And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. It's the place where now we're, we're free to ask God for whatever we want. And let me be clear, okay? This is important. I'm not telling you that you have to go through this like process step by step in order to get to the place where you can ask God for something, right? You're free to ask God for whatever you want, whenever you want. That's a beautiful thing, an important thing, a really good thing. But this, this practice of prayer, this process of prayer, uh, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's like a crock pot. Are, you, are you, any of you crock pot people? Can I get some hands in the congregation? Crock pot people, yes, okay. Right, the beauty of the crock pot is that you put your material in there, you set it for eight hours, you go about your day and you come back and dinner is ready. It was made for you. And I will tell you, we will eat crock pot meals for several days. The one meal, right? You can continue to feast on it, go back to it and back to it over and over and over again. That's what we're talking about with prayer is that we take whatever we have in us, whether it's our pain or our anger, right? Our unmet expectations that we throw it all into the crock pot of prayer. And that over time, with the special sauce of God's word, you know, if we're really going to stretch the analogy, okay? You know, I love to write analogies just really hard on the ground. Uh, Then what happens is that God promises that he does something with that. That there's a feast there that he's preparing for us. And that it strengthens us for, for the journey. It's a meal that we get to keep on coming back to. And that's, that's what we're going to do now, what we're going to kind of practice now at the end here of our, of our worship service. And before we do that, I, I, was, I know that when we talk about prayer, guys, it can be such a shaming topic, right? Like if I asked you, do you, do you feel like you pray enough in your life? I'm not, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I would imagine that if I were to ask that, not many of us would raise our hands, right? And we talk about prayer, we can kind of have this guilt of like, oh, I should do more, I should do more, I should do more, I should do more. Can we just not do that? And, though, and that what I, what I want you to hear more than anything is the invitation from your heavenly father that prayer is this place that he is, that is so much deeper and wider and bigger than you could ever imagine. And it's a place that he desires to meet you and love you and have compassion on you. But it's a place that he wants to form you. And that what you would say yes to is the invitation to continue to grow in that practice in the ways that we see uh, Nehemiah teaching us about even in in the word today. So the way that we're going to practice this is that uh, we've got three songs, okay? And before each of the songs, uh, we're going to have a scripture reading. And the scripture reading is going to guide us in a particular uh, part of prayer. So the first scripture we're going to read is going to lead us in looking at the bigness of God. And then you're going to have a, a minute to, to pray about that and to praise God for who he is. And then we're going to sing a song. And then someone else will come up and read another scripture. And that was going to be about our sin. So then there'll be a gap there and it'll be a chance for you to confess your sin to God. And then we'll sing a song. And then there'll be another scripture. 
And that what we'll, what we'll hear in that scripture is an invitation to supplication, an invitation to asking God for what we want. We'll have a chance to do that and then a chance to close in, in singing that prayer altogether. Does that make sense? Okay, this is way more nods. Next time I, we do communion, I'll try to be that clear about what's going to happen during communion, but that's what's going to happen during the worship time. Okay, uh, so Cam, will you go ahead and come up here? And guys, while Cam is coming up to read this first scripture for us, uh, let me start off our time in prayer. Uh, Father, we... Um, We desperately, Lord, are in need uh, of your help, uh, Lord, every day, your forgiveness, Lord, every day, and uh, desire to be anchored more firmly, Jesus, in your, uh, your plan of redemption in our world. We pray that you would make us a, prayer for, a prayerful people, uh, and Lord, that as we practice that even now together, uh, that you'd be drawing our hearts toward you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.